Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. In this episode of The Weather Pod, it's our pleasure to welcome into the studio Rebecca Leonardi, Managing Partner of WX Risk Global. WX Risk Global is a weather risk solutions company that provides weather and natural peril risk mitigation products and services to individuals, organizations, cities and nations worldwide, which are the potential victims of increasingly frequent climate-related impacts and disasters. These kinds of companies provide capital resources after an extreme weather-related event, and typical applications include agriculture, green energy, municipal budget defense, and catastrophe protection. Rebecca, welcome to the WeatherPod. Yes, welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, Alan and David. It's great to join you both here. Disaster risk financing is one of three pillars of a resilient society, the others being early warning and action and resilient infrastructure. Warnings help us take early actions, and resilient infrastructure reduces exposure to harm. Nevertheless, some losses are unavoidable and financial transfer mechanisms are needed to enable nations and communities to recover quickly. In practice, if any of these elements is missing, recovery takes a very long time, if it occurs at all. Developing economies are highly vulnerable to meteorological and hydrological hazards, and as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, biological threats also. These economies are increasingly turning to risk financing to manage disaster-related contingent liabilities for all threats. Rebecca, could we start by asking you to outline some of the basics of disaster risk financing, from the role of government to the role of the insurance industry, and how this plays out in disaster recovery? This is probably an area some of our listeners are not very familiar with. So let me first give you a quick background on parametric index products, or weather derivatives as we call them. They're much like a weather insurance, but in the case in the cases of catastrophic damage, especially, especially as it relates to the highly vulnerable, there are some benefits. First of all, the turnaround time for payouts are usually three weeks after the event as opposed to months or sometimes even years for other insurance products. And as we all know, this is critical when it comes to developing nations and the poor. And secondly, these products can be customized to fit exactly what the farmer or community or even government really needs. And this allows for a more cost-effective product that targets the actual inputs like temperature, rainfall, uh, length of time of the structure, and also even the budget. So relative to the role of the government, 
they are definitely the central entity that develops the overall disaster risk system for the public. But in general, they play an important role politically, economically, and socially in the risk governance system. They do things like handle resource assurance, technical support, and disaster risk management. Now, when it comes to the insurance industry, that's usually based on the government's regulation, and they have to both quantify the risk of disasters as well as develop products designed to, pro to provide financial stability when those risks become a reality. Then they have to implement logistical strategies so that they provide the greatest benefit to the largest number of people. So together, the governments would ideally work with the insurance agency or industries to really understand what's needed in a particular country or region of that country. Uh, Rebecca, we often talk about transferring risk. Um, and just at, at the start of this, I just wanted to ask a rather simple question. Obviously, risk transfer is, is not risk removal. So in a sense, somebody somewhere has to has to pay to recover from a natural hazard or or disaster. So I guess my question is who who pays in the end? Or is it a matter of spreading a big financial cost thinly across multiple people who pay? Yeah, most of the time we are we see these large companies syndicating with each other. And because they have such diverse portfolios, they're able to sort of transfer, like you're saying, risk from one party to the next, meaning one major company isn't going to hold all the all the risk in one area. Um, and for good reason, that's that diversity is really what helps their portfolios just to stay viable. So thanks for that. What What isn't exactly clear to me is how well do these financial mechanisms reach the poorest people? Those people are consistently are the most affected by disasters. How can low-income households, farmers and businesses be provided with post-disaster financial assistance? Yeah, so I still believe microinsurance is uh, the solution to this problem. Uh, the common features within microinsurance are um, active involvement of the community, uh, collection and pooling of funds, and then obviously resource allocation after uh, a disaster occurs. Um, so partnering with the companies and institutions on the ground is critical though, because they are, have obviously already established the trust within their own country and foreigners or outsiders, you know, certainly don't have that trust. So uh, they can assist in coordinated methods to provide financing to these large numbers. And when they're aggregating these weather coverage payouts, um, you know, they're able to do this much easier. Um, now that all that said, they still really need a middle office function to handle this bulk data load. Um, and this is sometimes where an intermediary can be helpful um, because they have the technology platforms to execute microinsurance that, you know, obviously the developing countries probably won't have. So, so Rebecca, actually, one of the benefits of this insurance-based approach seems to be how it could reduce borrowing and indebtedness of the poorest. So after a disaster occurs in many countries, the poor become permanently indebted, and in some countries, the need to earn money forces migration to cities, creating additional stress and preventing local investment and resilience of rural communities. So this type of catastrophe insurance seems to help keep families together and communities intact. Can it also help directly with reinvestment in communities, for example, by encouraging growing flood or drought tolerant rice? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, catastrophic coverage is perceived positively by most debt financiers because it creates a level of relative certainty that loan repayments will be made, you know, even in the event of a catastrophe. So therefore less risk equates to lowering their cost of providing such loans. That savings can then be transferred or to investing in community resilience that would further lower those loan interests. So for the rice example you just mentioned, the borrower savings would allow the rice farmer to invest in a, the more tolerant expensive rice that would result in higher yields and further loan savings. You know, there's no proof of loss necessary with these products, so the funds can be appropriated to, you know, what is needed in the community. That's very interesting. That there are many instances where the impact of weather is certainly disruptive and damaging, but it falls far short of widespread disaster or catastrophe. In these circumstances, such as flooding, for example, localised flooding, it's often said that the insurance industry can actually be unhelpful by not being prepared to offer insurance for properties at risk from flooding. Is this a matter of how the competitive insurance market works? And is there a way around such issues? Yeah, so the problem with the market relative to flooding is due to the lack of ability to quantify the actual, you know, flooding phenomena that occurs. You know, flooding happens due to many variables besides just rainfall, you know, basis risk or localized aspect of flooding means that it's also difficult to find a measuring source that can provide enough data. Um, but as a market grows, so too does the availability of these products. We're actually right now in conversations with a company in Europe that really does have the ability to offer a flood event coverage, um, but it's still only in its very early stages. And you know, we all know these are still relatively new products. You know, five years ago, we didn't have wildfire or hurricane coverage, and now those have really taken off. So you can see how quickly these are being developed. On the other hand, uh, if I can follow up on that, I mean, we've had flooding has been around for, for a long time. And uh, it, it, whilst, of course, you're, you're right that there are many causes of flooding, from heavy local rainfall to, to rivers, to catchments, uh, breaking banks, etc., as well as coastal flooding. But in the end, it's about, um, for example, a person who has a property who's going to get inundated with water. So there's a, there's a well-defined hydrological event that happens. So I wonder if you could you just expand a little bit about why you think that flooding, maybe I've got this wrong, but you perhaps think flooding is a bit complex to be able to, to offer the right kind of insurance. Yeah, so it's here's why it's so complex. If you could measure back 20 years of why that person's property actually had problems with flooding, you could probably create a product. The problem we're having is sometimes the flooding is due to rainfall, sometimes it's due to hurricanes, sometimes it's due to, you know, just even wash out of the road that's not being managed properly. Um, so as a as sort of an input for us, flooding is extremely difficult to cover for, whereas temperature isn't. We can get those readings and we have all that data. So these products are really based on historical data. And if we don't have the data, we can't write the product. So that's sort of, you know, the, the issue that we have. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Rebecca, it's really interesting that you mentioned 
the historical database that's needed for, for example, for flooding, um, so that insurance can be properly um, can be properly formulated. Obviously, in the meteorological world, there's a lot of effort at the moment going into what's called reanalysis, where we really try to get the best possible picture of what the state of the weather uh, and you know associated climate and and hydrological um, aspects of of the environment what they were like in the past and some of these reanalyses go back um, decades actually now with the latest uh, latest models do you think those are the sorts of data sets that could be useful for the insurance industry yes absolutely and i think we all recognize that the data is actually changing because the weather is changing right so we're seeing changes now that we haven't seen in the past we're seeing increased you know disasters that we haven't seen in the past all that whether it's you know whether we want to believe that it's what it's from is not really important i think the the big question here is if we have the right data meaning the most data for one location then we can use that data even if we're going to play place a, a time frame on it like let's say the last 10 years we're going to put more emphasis on that to do the pricing what it's really going to accomplish to have more data is to be able to get the prices down so a lot of the reinsurers are pricing higher than they should be because of unknowns not because of what they do know and that i think is where data is going to help us so do you think that that in a sense you're you're, you're waiting for this historical data from the the meteorological, et cetera, communities, or do you feel that data flow is happening? Uh, is, is there, a, in any sense, a, an obstacle there at the moment? No, we have 70 years of really fairly good data from a lot of locations around the world. So some of that data is, like temperature, is very easy for us to use, and it's very easy to, to write those policies. It's when you get into wind speed data, um, you know, when you get into rainfall, and as we talked earlier about flooding, you know, not really knowing what the reasons for the flooding are. Th those are things that the insurance companies stay away from because they obviously, if they don't have the information they need, they can't they can't write those policies as accurately. It seems to be a justification for investment in observations in many developing countries if we want to develop. Um, better risk tools um, you need data and that data needs to come from local some of well, a lot of it needs to come from local sources so how much is enough uh, if you were to look at a, a relatively poor developing country which has limited observation systems what, what what would you propose to be sort of a sufficient data set for you to be able to write appropriate insurance premiums yeah, so a lot of the insurance companies will tell you that they need 15 plus years. They like they like to see 20. Um, you know, that's sort of the minimum. But if you're dealing with in ground or or not not satellite data, which has a lot more basis risk, I believe that you could do it with 15 15 years of data. And we're finding that to be true with the new lightning covers that we're looking at. These guys have 15 to 20 years of lightning data and we're able to actually now write policies or beginning to write policies for lightning too. So, so these techniques, for example, where you can combine uh, in-situ data with, uh, so let's say two or three, year, three years or more of, of in-situ data with a long record of satellite data, is that combined product something that's useful? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Satellite data is very, uh, it's very valuable and it really does work with certainly with um, some inputs more than others, but it's definitely something that we, that we can use to build a better picture um, in order to, again, get the price down. That's really what the goal is here. We're spending a lot of time and effort trying to build national observing networks and justification for that is not just about we need the observations to uh, provide early warning we need the observations also to support the tools that are going to help people transfer risk and i think we haven't we don't couple these properly so i think it's it's quite useful for us to have that uh, part of that part of our discussion yeah i think it it's sort of obvious once we once you mentioned it Rebecca, that the historical database is so important uh, for insurance. But like, like David says, it's not the first thing that's mentioned when you tend to talk uh, in meteorological circles or, um, you know, with with um, with some of the developing countries. They're, they're long-term databases, um, which often they don't necessarily, even those observations get through to the major forecast centres, but they're incredibly helpful to verify and improve the models but also for you to have the database for insurance. Yeah, for sure. So as we've discussed, the availability of data varies between developed and developing countries. Is there also a difference in how the weather risk market works? So the products are very much the same as long as the regions have good data, but several of the developing nations don't have good data, right? So we, we, we're very aware of that. Um, we also know that a lot of the developing nations are unaware of these index-based derivative products. And so there's so much more education that needs to go into providing these solutions. Now, we, we also are all aware that corruption in many of these countries has given insurance in general a bad name. So we really have to work to change the stigma and get the people to understand the true benefits. And as you both very well know, that's not always an easy task. We've discussed several different, I think, different insurance-based financing approaches so far. And I assume in some senses they, they overlap to some degree. How, how in practice do you put them all together to, to offset a particular risk? And particularly here thinking about some of the, the weaker economies. Sure. So the reinsurance products and the international collaboration must be at the forefront of disaster financing. You know, unlike stronger economies, it's much more difficult to establish savings in the developing nations, even for the smaller disasters that may occur. Um, so for decades, we've, we've seen how reactive methods of self-insuring have led to increased financial hardship because of, it's obviously difficult to save when funds have to be dedicated to everyday expenses like food and housing. So it's imperative we understand that the beneficiaries and what their needs are, and it's so important to be able to find that balance. Sometimes just getting started with a small pilot program is a great way to be proactive. Um, we can see how people react to the warnings. We can find out if they'll actually take shelter when they're supposed to. And then once they understand they can truly trust the process, uh, they, they'll, and that they will receive the funds that they're owed, um, they're much more likely to find resources to pay for the premiums, you know, in a, like in an example of a microinsurance. Rebecca, we often hear stories about uh, clients wanting their insurance premium money back if a disaster doesn't occur. This applies equally to governments and individuals. 
What's being done to change government's interest in hedging against weather-related disasters? And can you provide flexible premiums for individuals that depend on changes in weather risk? So premiums are based on how probable it is for the weather conditions to occur. Less probable events provide a smaller premium. Uh, Also, longer-term structures can be paid for increments depending on the counterparties providing the coverage. But look, the reality is that this is similar to any other insurance. You pay a premium to know you have what you need when you need it. That is actually the real value. Governments are beginning to recognize the importance of these products, especially in areas of high weather catastrophes. Um, But the derivatives may be a little expensive. We all understand that. But if you pay for wind cover for 15 years and you get one major hurricane during that time, the payout from the storm more than reimburses all the premiums for the previous years. So it's really, you know, about analyzing and understanding your risk profile. How how does it work with governments? I mean, it's I mean, we have cases uh, where governments have actually asked for their money back or they've dropped the dropped uh, payments of premiums. Uh, for catastrophe risk insurance. Uh, Are there uh, things that the industry uh, um, can do to persuade governments to to be more active? Well, I think that governments really do need to be the ones to take the lead here. And, you know, they they also have to understand their own risk profile. So if they're being covered for something that's a one in a hundred year event, it should be virtually free for them to have that kind of cover. But if they're trying to cover for a hurricane in South Miami, you know, you're going to imagine that anybody on the other side of that is going to charge a lot of money because that happens so much more frequently. So I really think governments need to really understand what their real problem is and what are they insuring for. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Rebecca, I, I think it, as we come towards the end of, of the conversation, I wanted just to return um, to what we talked about earlier, which was about the transfer of financial risk. And if I could if I could ask you a question in, in two parts and, and pause in between. The first one would be, I, I'm still a little bit confused, and this is because I'm not very good at economics, but um, it it's almost seems like there is a bit of magic here. We can transfer risk and somehow everyone will benefit. Yet in the end, someone has to pay for the collective horror that is the disaster that happens that that might devastate a a community, a region or even part of a country. So um, can you just say just a little bit more about how the insurance um, process can really assist all the players in the in the in the issue? Sure. So maybe it would be a little easier if you looked at it like a pie. If you had all the major reinsurance companies and you had the actual insurance companies and they all had a small piece of the pie, if you had a disaster that occurs in, let's call it one of the Caribbean islands, and everybody has money involved in that, meaning everybody has has written a portion of a pol- of the policy for that. And usually it's in different layers. Um, the, those people are all gonna just have to pay a little bit of money out of pocket in order to keep everyone afloat. Now, if you have one major company that has taken on that entire risk pool, well, obviously you're gonna have 
problems with them being able to continue to do that year after year. So it really is about sharing, you know, these responsibilities and, and diversifying everybody's portfolio as much as possible. In addition to the premiums by the people who are taking out the policies, they are, they're not, this isn't a free, you know, system. You have to, they, people have to pay for this too. And so if, if it doesn't happen to you for 10 years and you've paid in, well, then you're also helping to keep that whole, you know, system afloat. Thanks. That, that's really helpful. Just the, the second part of the question would be, you know, David mentioned earlier at the beginning of the conversation, you know, and we've, we've covered this through, throughout, that the transfer of financial risk is a real pillar of disaster risk management. I, I was wondering, how do we become more active introducing these concepts into development projects in, in developing countries as a crucial component of a really a comprehensive early warning and response system? Yeah, so David and I have spoken about this uh, quite a bit in the past. You know, I'm a huge proponent of education. We spend countless hours traveling to pay places that have such a need but the people have no idea this is even an option for them so i i feel a responsibility to share this knowledge as well as to really take the time to analyze the culture and and what the people require on the ground you know these these solutions don't work in all situations and you know we're certainly not interested in selling a product that doesn't provide real value especially in poor areas of the world where the use of funds could definitely be better deployed for you know essentials like food and clean water, um, you know I'd like to think that as we get more technologically advanced, we'll be able to offer these solutions via maybe smartphones, um, just like we do you know banking products in places all over Africa. Um, that way, large numbers of people globally can purchase them, which would then considerably decrease the price and and then allow more people to participate. I guess some people might be curious that in developing countries, of course, we've got significant amount of, of poverty and, and at, at times and the, the ability of individual people to, to be able to purchase any, any product insurance products is going to be a bit limited. So is it, is it really the responsibility for getting these kinds of insurance um, on, on governments or regional, uh, regional councils or uh, more integrated communities. Yeah, I think for the most poor countries, I think that's that's the case. But I think we also all agree that we'd like to help people help themselves too, right? So if we can get to a place where something is just a really small amount of money and they're able to do that for themselves, then then that would be the goal. But I think ultimately what you're saying is correct. We need nonprofits, we need, you know, government subsidies, we need other people to join in now to to certainly to help be part of that solution. Rebecca, um, this has been really very, very interesting. And I, and I think the you know the role of uh, transferring risk is, a, is an essential part of any development work that uh, we're all engaged in. So I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. You've offered just a rather fascinating insight into the financial aspects of protecting against weather and climate risks. Yes, thanks very much, Rebecca. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Wow! 
In this WOW, we reflect on access to weather and climate data, both observations as well as forecast data. This has been a common theme in the many topics we've covered in the weather pod. So today we thought it would be interesting to talk about what we've learned, hopefully to stimulate further thinking. Thanks, Alan. Um, in climate and health, Madeline Thompson talked about the adequacy of observational data from the health side being critical, such as become abundantly clear in COVID-19, and to bring that together with high quality weather and climate data. Not only is there an issue of the adequacy of the data, but also there is a clear need to bring practitioners in weather and health sectors together to talk the same language to exploit these data sets fully, that is, multidisciplinary science and multidisciplinary operational practices. Yeah, in, in insurance, Rebecca Leonardi talked about weather certificates that can be an important mechanism to provide weather disaster financing. These certificates must be priced, but, but only by access to a good historical meteorological data record of past events. Actually, the weather enterprise, of course, has developed really sophisticated ways to reanalyse past weather and climate using today's science and models. This is a crucial resource for this way to finance risk. Furthermore, current pricing of insurance products depends to a degree on being able to relate an event, for example, flooding, to one or a small set of causes, such as the rainfall amount. But of course, many events can be influenced by multiple causes. But this indicates the importance for improved understanding of the causes of weather-related hazards. Yes, and in several episodes, we discussed the increasingly hot topic of what has become known as open data, scientific ad advances that drive the weather enterprise and its value chain relies on access to as much observational and prior forecast data as possible. Public data held by national meteorological and hydrological services is increasingly being made available to all users, essentially free at point of use. However, now there are also significant data volumes collected and owned by companies, as well as some public data Restricted, ac under restricted access from National Meteorological and Hydrological Services for which the end user must pay. Clearly it is the, in the wider interests of all actors in the weather enterprise for as much data as possible to be accessible and this presents a challenge to be addressed. Yes, uh, even in the, the World Development Report 2021, Data for Better Lives, which has just been published, it highlights the potential of data to generate economic and social value, but also recognises that many barriers stand in the way from misaligned incentives to a lack of trust. And I noted that the report also includes a spotlight on two-way data flows between meteorological services and ECMWF. This is a point raised in our conversation with Florence Rabier, the Director General of ECMWF. Another important development that she discussed in connection with ECMWF's recently published 10-year strategy is the increasing use by ECMWF and others of machine learning and artificial intelligence to improve the skill of weather forecasts. Such techniques typically rely on long historical data sets that can act as the training data for an AI algorithm. Centres such as ECMWF are increasingly using significant fractions of available supercomputer time to produce reforecasts of past events using today's science and models. These reforecast datasets then become a crucial resource for the wider weather enterprise to carry out calibration to remove some of the systematic errors in weather predictions. 
And another development we heard about is the growth of so-called weathered data clouds in which huge data volumes can be uploaded, stored and accessed online by users. Software tools to enable subsetting and visualization to mine the vast data sets in the cloud to avoid massive downloads of entire data sets that otherwise would be needed for such calculations to be carried out by users locally. This came up recently in a meeting of Met Service Directors and Director Generals in South Asia as a way forward for regional cooperation. So one can imagine a future with a set of weather data clouds spanning the globe in much the same way as the satellite constellation enables a global observing system. There have been many other topics where access to data has come up in previous weather pod discussions. But for now, let's close with a final example, David. Yeah, many developing countries struggle to maintain an adequate, never mind a good national observational network. And we heard some details of this regarding Africa from Marion Diop and Doug Parker. This paucity of data has several profound ramifications. As we know, the weather system is truly global, so any lack of observational data in one location can be detrimental to the forecast for almost all other countries. This means it's in everyone's interest to help to increase data volumes where there are gaps. But also numerical weather prediction centres need additional local measurements that are not available in real time to be ingested into initial conditions, but instead to evaluate predictions to see where systematic biases are arising so that these can be fixed. Increasingly, such verification data are highly sought after by the weather prediction organisations. To conclude, we all know that the weather enterprise is a big data-rich environment. But what has become clear in our various discussions is that data access and availability is a crucial issue that has not been fully solved and requires ongoing innovative thinking so that the weather enterprise can maximise the benefits of these high-value data. Alan, I'm sure we'll continue to explore this theme in future episodes of The Weather Pod. Yes. Uh, before we sign off, we would like to remind listeners that we welcome your contributions to WOW. That's interesting. If you have an interesting weather-related story, please send us a short, perhaps 90-second audio recording to the email address on the Global Weather Enterprise Forum website. We'll play a selection of these submissions during our WOW That's Interesting Weather Pod segment. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org. 